0: This is the Dialogue Journal Podcast Series.
1: Hello, and welcome to another Dialogue Podcast. I'm your host, Morris Thurston. Our guest this time is Dr. Lisa Olson Tate, a writer and historian at the Church History Library, who will speak about one of the most fascinating women in Mormon history. In an earlier meeting of the Miller study group, I asked those in attendance if anyone could tell me two things about Susie Young Gates. After a few seconds, one gentleman raised his hand. She was one of Brigham Young's wives. That's only one thing I said, and it's wrong. To be completely truthful, before I looked her up in Wikipedia, I would have been hard pressed to say anything concrete about Susie Young Gates, but I don't know why she isn't better known. Since the details of her life are not the focus of this podcast, I'll give you just a few tidbits to whet your appetite. She was born in 1856. She was a daughter of Brigham Young and his wife, Lucy Bigelow. She entered the University of Deseret at the age of 13 and became the editor of the student newspaper. When she was 16, she married Alma Dunford and had two children. That was a very unhappy marriage, and the couple divorced. But one of her daughters, one of her children by that marriage, became the wife of John A. Widso. And then in 1878, when she would have just been in her early 20s, she entered the Brigham Young Academy in Provo, where she founded the music department. In 1880, she married Jacob Gates, and she had 13 more children by him. Seven of them did not survive to adulthood, and some of those were very tragic deaths. Sousa and her husband served as church missionaries in Hawaii in the died of Diphtheria. She recounted those experiences in a novel called The Little Missionary. In 1889, she founded the Young Women's Journal, Later, that journal was adopted as the official journal of the Young Ladies Mutual Improvement Association. She also wrote another novel and then went on to found the Relief Society magazine, which later became the official publication of the church's Relief Society. In all, Gates wrote nine books, including a biography of her father, two novels, A History of Women in the LDS Church, and a 1911 history of the Young Ladies Mutual Improvement Association. She was active in promoting women's rights and women's suffrage. She was the founding organizer of the National Household Economics Organization, and she was a delegate and speaker to five congresses of the International Council of Women. She was a primary organizer of the Utah Chapters of the Daughters of the American Revolution, the Daughters of the Utah Pioneers, and the National Women's Press Club. She attended several Republican national conventions, and she was also a member of the Board of Regents of Brigham Young University and Utah State Agricultural College. Toward the end of her life, she became the head of the research department and library of the Genealogical Society of Utah. So, in this remarkable life, as we go through what she did, we might be tempted to characterize her as one of Mormonism's first feminists, and this is the issue that Lisa Olson Tate will address. It isn't that simple. We hope you'll enjoy this podcast, and if you do, that you'll consider contributing to Dialogue, a Journal of Mormon Thought, which you can do online at dialoguejournal.com. The next voice you'll hear will be my wife, Dawn, who is introducing Dr. Tate to a meeting of the Miller Study Group in Fullerton, California.
2: I've noticed some buzz among certain circles on the internet about Apostle Russell Nelson's Sunday morning talk at General Conference, where he said, "...Mormon women need to speak up and speak out during leadership meetings in their LDS congregations and in their homes to benefit fellow worshipers, influence their families, and take their rightful place in the faith." Well, women's place in Mormonism has been a much-discussed topic for as long as I can remember, and more so recently. Tonight's speaker, Dr. Lisa Olson Tate, will be shining a light on a brilliant, courageous woman from our past who spoke up and spoke out with great effectiveness, Susa Young Gates. As you listen to this presentation, I think you'll be surprised that you haven't heard more about Sousa Gates' many accomplishments. And now about our speaker Lisa Olson Tate holds a PhD in American Literature and an Interdisciplinary Graduate Certificate in Women's Studies from the University of Houston. She has published award-winning articles and presented research about gender and generational dynamics in 19th-century Mormondom. And her current big project is writing a biography of Susie Young Gates. She works as a historian and writer on the web team at the Church History Library And serves on the executive committee of the Mormon Women's History Initiative team, an independent group that fosters research and networking in the field of Mormon women's history. Dr. Tate lives in Highland, Utah, with her husband Mike and their four children. Their youngest child and only daughter is mentally handicapped, and she and her husband are involved with the Special Olympics. Dr. Tate.
0: I want to thank you for inviting me to come, this is fun, and I'm always amazed at people who will come out on a Friday night to listen to history geeks like myself mm-hmm. talk, so I'm glad to be here and look forward to having this discussion tonight. When Morris emailed me and asked me to, uh, to do this presentation, all he said was, we'd like you to come and talk about your work with the Mormon Women's History Initiative. And so I thought I'd start out with a little bit of introduction about that, which Dawn has actually provided quite nicely. This screenshot up here is a page from our website that we run, mormonwomenshistoryinitiative.org. It's a way too long of a URL, and there's a story there, but we won't go into that. But we call it MWIT. And it was founded about 10, 12 years ago by Carol Cornwall Madsen, Jill mulvey Cherry Silver, some of their colleagues at the time who were working primarily under the auspices of uh, the Women's Research Institute at BYU. But from the beginning, the, the vision was for MWIT to be an independent entity. And we call ourselves a hub for networking and a bridge to the community. So we try to create and foster contacts among scholars and people that are interested in Mormon women's history, And then we also try to increase awareness and get the word out to the community about the great scholarship and work that's being done in Mormon women's history. So to that end, we um, sponsor events a couple of times a year in the, obviously mostly in the Wasatch Front area. We also sponsor a breakfast each year at MHA, the Mormon History Association, which some of you may have attended in the past. We sponsor an award that MHA gives for the best article in women's history each year. And last year we tried something new and actually sponsored a symposium of our own. That was a great success. It was reflecting on 40 years of Mormon women's history. It was kind of a tribute to Claudia Bushman, who of course brought the house down with her luncheon talk. But we are in the process of publishing the proceedings of that symposium. We hope to have that book out early next year. And we're going to try, um, perhaps on a triennial schedule, to sponsor future symposiums as well. This year we've been launching more into social media, so we have a couple of Facebook pages. If you're on Facebook, look for I Love Mormon Women's History, and like us and follow us. We try to put out little snippets of vignettes and photos and information about Mormon women's history. There's also an MWIT page, and this is a way of keeping in touch with us and hearing about our events. If you would like to go to our website and fill out our contact form, um, we'd love to have you as part of our network. We're launching a newsletter that we're going to send out a couple of times a year just by way of updates and, and helping people feel like we're all kind of part of a community. And we'd like to spread the word. And we'd like your help in spreading the word, um, letting people know about us. And with that background in mind, I think a brief review of Mormon women's history is in order um, by way of working into the substance of my remarks tonight, and I'm going to try to go back and forth between reading some and speaking more off the cuff. I find that I go off the reservation less if I have something to to work from here. As you probably know, women's history grew out of the efforts of second-wave feminists in the 60s, 70s, 80s to recover and make visible the voices, experiences, and contributions of women in the past, and to place them rightly where they belong, at the center of the human experience and historical events From today's vantage point, and probably for anybody that's born after 1970, it's probably almost impossible to understand just how necessary this was, how needed it was, and how radical it was for the time just to say that women are part of history and and belong at the center of the story. Mormon women began examining, uh, inspired by these efforts, what to them was a lost past of their foremothers. And as they did so, the findings were exhilarating and inspiring. There seemed to be a usable past. Examples of women doing things and taking positions and expressing ideas that had great currency and cultural meaning to women in the late 20th century. And from this there developed a narrative of 19th century Mormon female power and autonomy that resonated with feminist sensibilities. Susie Young Gates has often been included in that narrative, and rightly so. She's no question a preeminent woman in a generation of eminent women. But as I'm going to show tonight, the label feminist is not an easy fit for her, and by extension for most of the women of her time, of the Mormon women in particular. The question is, does this matter? And what are we doing when we do Mormon women's history? It's worth thinking carefully about these questions, um, especially as historical claims are used to advance certain arguments that go on today about women's issues. Sousa's story gives us an opportunity to kind of think about some of these things. All right, I'm going to stick to a very very brief biographical overview of Sousa here tonight as some of you at dinner know I can talk about her for a long time. She was the first child born in the Lion House in March of 1856. Her parents, of course, were Brigham Young and Lucy Bigelow Young, who someone asked me what number wife she is. I don't know, but she's down there a ways. She was one of the younger wives at the time. Sousa grew up in the Lion House in what we would consider relatively privileged circumstances for the time. She received as good of an education as was available. She was an accomplished musician. She played the piano, she said, before she could read she danced, she um, was also one of the first people in Utah to learn stenography. And that skill served her well throughout her life and perhaps gave her access to her father in certain ways that meant a lot to her. In 1870, she and her mother and younger sister moved to St. George and kind of became Brigham Young's family and residence there. They never lived in the house that we know if we go to St. George now, that is the Brigham Young home. That was built a little bit later. But Lucy had her own home there, and Sousa lived there for a couple of years, and then at the ripe age of 16, she married a young dentist named Alma Dunford. He was five years older than she was, and he was an alcoholic and abusive, and Sousa bore two children and lived through six years of trauma in that marriage before finally divorcing him in 1878. And um, as a, again, as I've said to some people, the records of that divorce are every bit as harrowing as you would imagine a divorce in 1878 could be for a 22-year-old girl. Two years later, however, she married Jacob Gates, who had been a neighbor in Saint George, and that marriage was as fabulously successful as the first one was failure. And Susa and Jacob had 11 children together, making her, as she often said, the mother of 13 children. But she buried eight of those children before the turn of the century. So for 20 years, Susa was almost constantly pregnant, nursing, and mourning. And some of those children died, most of them actually died, under just tragic circumstances. We're not talking about your run-of-the-mill babies dying in the 19th century, which did happen, but... Many of them were very, very sad stories. And then she died in 1933 in Salt Lake City. Well, in between, of course, she became Susie Young Gates, as this photograph of her uh, really shows. This is one of my favorite pictures of Susan. You can see her regal bearing. She looks every inch her father's daughter. This picture was taken in Chicago in 1920 when she went back for the celebration of women's suffrage and boasted, of course, that she had been voting longer than almost any other woman there. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm. Um, she was a prolific writer of both fiction and nonfiction. She's one of the founders of the Mormon home literature movement, one of the first to write a novel. She uh, founded and edited both the Young Women's Journal and the Relief Society magazine and that gave her a platform from which her voice was extremely influential, as we'll see a little bit later. Um, and in the interest of time you can probably see these other uh, accomplishments here she's on the board of a lot of things she's involved nationally and internationally the last years of her life were um, focused very heavily on temple and genealogy work and if um, Mormons are known to have an expertise as genealogists Sousa is one of the main reasons for that she's taught thousands of people and really wore out the last years of her life in that effort and um, on the church history website, history.lds.org. We've recently published an article about her and her efforts in genealogy and her experience with the um, revelation that Joseph F. Smith had in 1918. So I would commend that to you, as well as the church history website in general, which basically nobody knows exists, but has some really good stuff on it. Okay, that was longer than I intended. When Sousa died... She was eulogized as one of the most eminent women of our time. She lived the life of an intellectual Daniel Boone, one writer wrote, with restless urge and intrepid courage, blazing trails out in the, into the trackless and unexplored wilderness of thought that others might follow and build securely along the paths she marked out for them. She was said to have a faculty for far-sightedness and to understand the spiritual and intellectual needs of her sisters in the church and she had unusual ability as an organizer. One of her colleagues wrote of her, that she is engaging and brilliant in conversation and possesses the repletion of sentiment which naturally accompanies an artistic temperament, this emotional nature being held in check by the saving grace of humor. Her mind is the versatile, imaginative type, keenly perceptive and philosophical. And then she says, all that is written of Mrs. Gates in her lifetime will be necessarily inadequate, It is only through the perspective of years that her achievements and dynamic power will be fully discernible. I find that an interesting statement given that Susie Young Gates is probably one of the most famous Mormon women that you've never heard of. When you Mm -hmm. go into a a room full of Latter-day Saints today, by and large, people don't know who she is. And I think that's unfortunate. All right, well, we're going to start with this question about how how do we place her in relation to feminism? And a couple of brief statements here will have to stand as representative of her, her views. So, on the one hand, we have this. If women once taste the delight of supporting themselves, they will never again willingly consent to ask any man for every cent of money they wish to spend. It is not pleasant, sentiment aside, to ask anybody for that which you know you want and mean. And once you get into the way of earning your own money, it is so delightfully independent that it is very difficult to return to dependence. On the other hand, now it's all twaddle, this talk about women being able to do the work of men and still retain all the rights and privileges of womanhood. The experiment has been tried long enough by Sousa herself, we might add, to prove that motherhood and public life don't harmonize except to a limited extent. If women want to sacrifice all their own high and holy rights to seize upon the privileges and duties of their husbands and brothers, I suppose they will do it. They generally do just about as they please, sooner or later. But if they prize their own rights, let them guard them sacredly, and not like a silly child, reach out arms for the moon, unloosing from their clasped hands as they reach the rich jewel of healthful, blessed motherhood. As you can see, Sousa had quite a voice and quite a distinctive personality. If we have difficulty making sense of Sousa's feelings and theories about gender, so did she. A deep ambivalence and internal conflict registers in her writings on the subject, especially in the 1890s, these, when these quotes are from, when she was editing the Young Woman's Journal and participating frantically in every woman's cause she could find. She claimed that the conflict had been resolved from her, for her through revelation. She wrote, A number of years ago, a voice from heaven speaking to my spirit warned me of the dangerous position in which I stood on this question. I feel sometimes that I could go down on my knees in a public place and thank God that he was so mindful of his erring and mistaken child. Oh, the glory and loveliness of my position as a woman before my heavenly parents since that day. The day when it came to me by revelation that I was fighting the truth by opposing my husband and my leaders and hating myself because I had been born a woman. If you could only know the happiness that comes from God when you are in the light. I'm going to discuss how Sousa came to this theologically grounded theory of gender and women's rights that grew out of her (coughs) personal need and also out of pivotal interactions (coughs) that she had with the powerful men in her life and that then she felt compelled and entitled to articulate and teach as truth to others. Well, as you can see from this quote here, this may raise a certain question for us, which is, what did it mean to her that she was a daughter and not a son of Brigham Young? And the implications of that fact were not lost on her at all. Susan did not write about herself very often in a reflective or revealing way. And so the few things that we can find of that nature are very precious and carry a lot of weight. And this is one of them. It's an article from the Young Woman's Journal in 1896 called The Editor Presumes to Talk About Herself. And here she tells the story of her birth. And I'm going to read this to you. I don't think it needs a lot of commentary. But it gives us a sense of how her feelings about herself and her gender are... Um, very deeply and early rooted in her life. Immediately upon my own initial bow to the audience, she says, I am told that my mother, upon finding out my sex, exclaimed with great force, if not elegance, Shucks. Aunt Zina, who was presiding high priestess of the occasion, responded in her rapid yet gentle tone of her monstrous, No, it isn't shucks, it's wheat and full weight, too. Mm -hmm. Then enters my dear father upon the stage of action. And my beloved mother, still smarting under the disappointment that I should always be clothed in petticoats, instead of proudly assuming pantaloons at the age of three years or thereabouts, asked my father what he would like the little disappointment named. He responded, father replied, it did not matter so much, and left mother to make her own choice now furthermore a dear old nurse well known in old Utah days as Aunt Suzanne Richards was engaged and present upon that important occasion to remain with mother for another several days if not a week it seems that prior to my father's visit mother had had some talk with the nurse who had begged to name the baby in case father did not do so you must understand the full weight of my mother's disappointment for she had had but one child in eight years of married life four years prior to my birth and that child was a girl She naturally desired to possess a boy, a true representative of her adored husband. I have no doubt if I had had the good sense to appear upon the scene as a boy, I should have been christened Brigham, as this was the delightful custom in our house. The first boy, not only of the first, but of every succeeding wife, was nearly always named after the husband and father they all loved so well. So you see, it was by the merest chance I failed to be a boy and to bear the name of my revered father. Behold me then, left to the kind naming mercies of the nurse, who had obtained the promise she sought. Suzanne, I became plain, simple, old-fashioned Suzanne after her own estimable self. And then she explains that there's a evolutionary process after that that gets her to Susan. And I can talk about that later if you're interested. So there's one indication of Susan's feelings. Here's another. This is another article that she wrote for the Young Woman's Journal, and this one she titled Boy Versus Girl, and it begins, My dear girl reader, did you ever wish you were a boy? Have you not spent many moments thinking or talking over the advantages boys have? Have you ever allowed a kind of angry envy to creep into your heart when contrasting the conditions of the sexes? If you have done none of these things, you are presumably a very contented and delighted person. I am going to make a confession. I think I was one of the most dissatisfied members of my sex for many years. I continually longed for women to get their rights, and it seemed to me that in order to do so, they must necessarily seize and absorb all the privileges and resources of men, and to be equal to men, they must enter men's sphere. She then goes on to describe this revelatory experience that I mentioned a minute ago. She says, if you have already reached this unhappy frame of mind, I know of one way only to get back to the light and comfort of truth. That way is by asking God to give you his inspiration on this troubled subject. Which she says is what happened for her. Now, reconstructing from the records that she left, I haven't found any contemporary records of this revelatory experience, which doesn't mean that it didn't happen what i have found is a couple of pivotal interactions that she had with important men in her life that helped her to formulate what she felt was the answer to these questions the first of these occurred with her father she told this story many times throughout her life in different settings here's one version she recounts that her father said to her, If you were to become the greatest writer, the most eloquent woman speaker, the most gifted and learned woman of your time, and had neglected your home and children in order to become so, if when you arise on the morning of the resurrection day you found that your duty as a wife and mother had been sacrificed in order that you might pursue any other duty, you will find your whole life had been a failure. She goes on and says, and I think this is important, she says, I have tried to make that thought the guiding star of my life. Before undertaking any work in every affair of life, the wishes and will of my husband has been my strictest law. President Young said further on that occasion, if in addition to your wifely and motherly duties you can pursue one or more fields, of public labor. In fact, all the good that you can accomplish publicly or privately, in addition to your home duties, will be so much added glory to your eternal crown. Now, a few um, observations about this experience. As I said, she repeated it several times, which I think is indicative that it was something very important and foundational to her. She probably didn't have a lot of one-on-one interactions with her father, and so it could be all the more important for that reason. In one account, she places it shortly before he dies, so she would have been 21 years old with two small children and mired in her horrible marriage at that time, which could also add to the significance here. Note how it indirectly acknowledges her ambitions, how it acknowledges that she might want to become the greatest woman writer and so forth. In another version of the story, she says that her father, quote, knew my eager spirit and rising ambitions and had always been so dear about my few gifts and powers, and that he saw very far down into my soul. In this period, for a woman to publicly acknowledge that she has ambitions is in and of itself a very brave and dangerous thing to do. So she never can quite do it directly. And so it's significant that it's here even by implication. Notice how Brigham Young's um, counsel to her is rooted in Mormon theology, in the theology of eternal marriage and families, but it's also rooted in the social context of the understandings of biology and the meaning of gender in the 19th century. But it stands out for Sousa as a moment of self-definition and life-ordering. Womanhood equaled motherhood. That was the bedrock. It was true biologically, psychologically, and theologically. And it would be the non-negotiable basis for her theory of gender. And again, it's not necessarily unique in 19th century culture, but there are some specifically Mormon resonances to these ideas. The other great and important friendship and relationship in her life was with Joseph F. Smith. She had known him all her life, presumably. He's 17 years older than she is and was in Brigham Young's home and in, in the same orbit that she grew up in quite a bit. But they became very close friends in the years that they spent together in La'ie in Hawaii. Uh, Susan and Jacob spent the second half of the 1880s there on a mission which was a return mission for Jacob because he had served there before, and he was very good at, number one, sugar boiling, and number two, the Hawaiian language. And so he was there to work in the sugar plantation and to do missionary work. This photo on the left is a picture of the Gates family taken while they're in Hawaii. Joseph F. was there in exile, um, hiding out from the feds, basically. He and his wife, Julina, And Sousa and Joseph F. got to know each other and became very close friends there. And by very close friends, just one example of that, I have found over 130 letters exchanged between Sousa and Joseph F. from 1887 to the end of his life. And in those letters, there's references to many more, to many other letters that haven't been saved. She saved most of his letters, him not so much. So, you know, there were a lot of letters between them. And there was a, just a strong affinity and mutual respect between the two of them. Susa, in true Sousa fashion, was very effusive and almost obsequious, if you know that word, in, in speaking to Joseph F and praising him and falling all over herself about how much she loves him. And there are times when he's kind of, you know, trying to get her to tone it down a little bit. <laughs> but the truth is that he loved and respected and admired her too. and re- And really there was a strong affinity between the two of them, but this statement that she makes in one of the letters I think is really significant in suggesting that she may have transferred some of her feelings about her father to this other powerful male figure, saying to him that that he affects her just as my own beloved father used to, and that she seems to say her silliest things when she's around him. And so I want to look at a really remarkable exchange of letters that they had in 1888. He, uh, Smith is back in Utah at this time. The Gateses are still in Hawaii, and so they're writing back and forth to each other quite as frequently as the ship, you know, ship mail allows. And apparently, Susan's letter is lost, so we don't know exactly what she said, but Joseph quotes from it, and apparently she ask him, asks him specifically, whether a woman holds a portion of the priesthood in connection with her husband. Now his reply in a word was no. But in giving this response to her, he elaborates his understanding of the relationship of men, women, and priesthood. And I'm going to quote at length from these letters, and I've got some slides here so you can follow along because it's so fascinating. And we want to note, first of all, the absolutely fundamental theory of gender that is at work here and gender hierarchy. Joseph F. writes to her, The man, of course, is the head of the woman, but the woman is the glory of the man, and Christ is his head. The man is not without the woman, nor the woman without the man In the Lord. So far we're in Corinthians and we're in good biblical ground here. His wife is queen, but is not and never can be. Oh wait, I'm sorry. God is a man. His wife is queen, but is not and never can be God. Yet without the woman, he could not be God either. No man can ever attain to the Godhead alone or without the woman. No woman can attain to the Godhead but can and will share the dignity, honor, and exaltation of that matchless climax of power and glory with her husband. So this statement places man in the central position of an eternal hierarchy. Christ, man, woman. The statement that woman can never be God suggests a view in which woman's sharing of Godhood with her husband is fundamentally subordinate, though he does allow that man cannot attain to Godhood without woman. But notice that it is man who attains to Godhead. He continues, It is the same in regard to the priesthood. A woman does not hold a portion of the holy priesthood through her husband or father. But she shares with her father or husband under the new and everlasting covenant all his honors, his privileges, and his rights in her proper sphere, together with his blessing, gifts, endowments, power, and glory, not merely deriving these honors from her husband but in connection with him, creating two parts of a whole, the woman adding to and partaking of the greatness and glory of the man as he adds to and partakes of the greatness and glory and happiness of Christ. Well, a few notes. Nothing is said here about greatness and glory of woman except by implication. She adds to the greatness and glory of the man and seemingly partakes of that greatness and glory. This seems contradictory to the idea that she does not derive her honors from her husband. Two parts of a whole leaves at least theoretical room for equality of the sexes, and I think we would say it that way today. But Smith seems unable to envision it in those terms. In a later letter, he asks, Is it not sufficient honor for the woman that the man is dependent upon her for a fullness of exaltation and that he cannot attain to it without her? We'll each have to answer that question for ourselves, whether that's sufficient honor. In asking whether women held a portion of the priesthood in connection with their husbands, Sousa was referring to a well-established discussion within 19th century Mormondom. We could talk about this for about two hours, so I'm going to give you just a brief nutshell here. The idea seems to have grown out of the Nauvoo Temple experience and Joseph Smith's statement, or more accurately, his colleague's later editing of his statement, to the Nauvoo Relief Society that, quote, and this is the edited version, the faithful members of the Relief Society should receive the keys of the priesthood in connection with their husbands through making covenants in the temple. This expression, that women hold a portion of the priesthood in connection with their husbands, can be found in many sources throughout the 19th century, expressed by both men and women. In 1880, for example, John Taylor explained that the ordination of women to lead the Relief Society in 1842, which he performed by assignment from Joseph Smith, did not mean, quote, "...the conferring of the priesthood upon those sisters," Yet, the sisters hold a portion of the priesthood in connection with their husbands. And around the same time that Joseph F. and Sousa are having this discussion in their letters, Apostle Franklin D. Richards addressed the Weber Stake Relief Society and gave one of the most elaborated um, discussions of this idea. He said, I ask anybody and everybody present who have received their endowments, whether he be a brother, apostle, bishop, high priest, elder, or whatever office he may hold in the church, what blessings did you receive? What ordinance, what power, intelligence, sanctification, or grace did you receive that your wife did not partake of with you? I will answer that there was one thing that our wives were not made special partakers of, and that was the ordination to the various orders of the priesthood which were conferred upon us. Aside from that, our sisters share with us any and all of the ordinances of the Holy Anointing, Endowments, sealings, Sanctifications, and Blessings that we have been made partakers of. Now I ask you, is it possible that we have the Holy Priesthood and our wives have none of it? Do you not see by what I have read that Joseph desired, and what he had just read was these minutes from the Novit Relief Society that I quoted, uh, that Joseph desired to confer these keys of power upon them in connection with their husbands? I hold that a faithful wife has certain blessings, powers, and rights, and is made partaker of certain gifts and blessings and promises with her husband, which cannot be deprived of except by transgression. So this is just, again, an example of an expression that we can find quite a bit, that Suze is asking about. Joseph F. saying no is seems to be kind of a subtle departure from uh, what seems to be commonly understood within the in the community, but it, I think, speaks to the fact that it's never settled doctrine, it's never something that there isn't questions about, but it is very much an expression that would have been familiar to Sousa and people in her generation. By 1912, Talmadge in the House of the Lord states it this way, It is a precept of the church that women of the church share the authority of priesthood with their husbands, actual or prospective. And therefore women, whether taking endowment for themselves or for the dead, are not ordained to specific rank in the priesthood. So now note that while earlier uses of this expression implied that women had something, Talmadge uses it to say that they don't. And so there's been kind of a shift, and again, that's something we could talk about for a long time, but um, you'll see in Sousa's thinking how she's part of that shift. And and Talmadge's position is closer to the position that Joseph F. Smith articulates to Susa in his letters. Here's one last quote from him, and the slide on this one has dropped out mysteriously. He says, The priesthood of the Son of God is bestowed upon the man, that attaining to the same eminence and perfection he may act as Christ and God act. But man, as you know, embraces woman. Therefore, while man or the male part of man is the direct object on whom the power and honor of the priesthood are bestowed, and he is the active medium of its operations, she partakes of its benefits, its blessings, its power, its rights, and privileges with him as the complement of himself. And you can see, perhaps, from this that Joseph F. Smith and his formulation of ideas about priesthood have lasted and been very influential in creating the modern church and the ideas that have been passed down. All right, well, so what did Sousa Young Gates do with all of this? Because Sousa being Sousa, she uh, felt entitled to teach what she learned to everybody else. And she took these ideas and kind of reworked them into her own formulation of the meaning of gender, and especially as that was related to priesthood. In 1914, as she's the editor of the new Relief Society magazine, in one of the early issues of this magazine, she states, women do not hold the priesthood. This fact must be faced calmly by mothers and explained clearly to young women, which I just find to be a fascinating statement. There's some implication that it's not going to be accepted calmly, but it needs to be. Women in this church must not forget that they have rights which men do not possess. They have their own field, their own duties, their own privileges. Women in this church choose to be womanly, and womanly is one of her favorite words. They choose to honor their fathers and husbands. They choose their own sphere and duties with that calm and gracious dignity which ensures to them a full life here and eternal happiness hereafter. Notice how she keeps repeating choose, and she's emphasizing the idea of women's agency, that women are choosing to do something. Okay, well there are many other examples of how she puts this all together that could be cited, but one of the most interesting that clearly brings things together is in a pamphlet that she publishes towards the end of her life in 1929 called Why I Believe the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And in this pamphlet, she goes through and she starts with the Egyptians and the Babylonians and tells you all about the history of world and religion and how she came to believe what she believes and why the gospel's true and all of this. It's, it's wonderful stuff. And vintage Sousa. But then she eventually comes to a section called Men and Women in Church Relationship. And she places her ideas about um, gender that she expresses here in the context of a conversation with Joseph F. Smith. And you'll see that she seems to be drawing on the letters that I've just reviewed and and what he said to her in the letters. I think that some conversation probably actually took place, but there's no reference to it in the letters. And it seems that she's kind of creating a composite memory here and drawing on, on, on these discussions. All right. Here's what she says. Accepting the priesthood as a vital part of church government both here and hereafter with the authority of decision and leadership vested in man holding the priesthood, I was confronted as a young wife and mother with another angle, that of man's sole leadership in church and domestic affairs. But I wanted the light, and it came. My husband and I, she said, were on the Sandwich Islands on a mission in 1888 with President Joseph F. Smith. I'll note that Smith is gone by 88, so Susan's really loose with her dates. And President Joseph F. Smith was also there. Regular priesthood meetings were held in the mission house, and I said to President Smith one day, how is it that you call in all these boy elders and leave me out of your council meetings? Don't you realize that I know more about the gospel and human problems than those boys do? Why, there are only two men here, yourself and my husband, who I acknowledge as my superiors in wisdom, intelligence, and leadership. Then why shut me out? Mm -hmm. And whether she actually ever said that to Joseph Smith or not, I have no doubt that she thought it. And I suspect, again, that there is a kernel here of an actual conversation. He replied, You admit that your husband Jacob and myself are your superiors? Well, that's the key. That's the whole question in a nutshell. Who is the greatest woman of modern times? Eliza R. Snow, I answered. Admitted. But do you consider her the superior or even the equal in intelligence or leadership to the prophet Joseph Smith or your father, Brigham Young? No, no, decidedly not, I hastened to reply. Then, that is the key. Wherever you'll find a superior woman, you'll find a man who is just one step ahead of her who will be her leader and guide, as Christ is the head of all men holding the priesthood. And that authority must be respected by you and by your husband, right? This is amazing stuff. And by your husband in his association with his bishop and by the bishop in in respect to his stake president and on up to the president of the church who is responsible to God and also to the votes of the people twice a year. Every man and woman in the church renders reverence and obedience to the one who is placed over him or her. There is no such thing as absolute freedom in individual is individual freedom in group life. End of quote. She continues, "That was logical, consistent, but why could women not hold the priesthood? Not because of lack of intelligence or leadership qualities, perhaps, but ever and always because she is the mother of the race." She shares all the gifts and blessings of the priesthood but does not hold the priesthood. Priesthood involves tremendous responsibility as to personal conduct, setting an example, home and church leadership, missions, constant attendance and meetings, etc., etc. No woman can be an ideal woman here and hereafter and at the same time assume the heavy tasks and responsibilities which accompany direct leadership. No normal woman cares to take the responsibility of deciding crucial points either in domestic, spiritual, or even civic life. My men folks must keep all the Ten Commandments if they expect me to follow them into the kingdom of heaven. Strict honesty and chastity were and are the standards set up for all men in this church. It is a joy to follow the example and leadership of such men. And so, it comes to this. Men have priesthood, women have motherhood. This has become a commonplace formulation but it originally rested on an elaborated theory of gender that has not survived intact. So by way of summary, note the critical points in this theory. So first, there must be order. All wanting to be boss is what ails men and nations today, and some women as well, Susan asserted. Man is subordinate to Christ, as woman is subordinate to man. So it was easier to understand women's subordinate position if men were likewise seen to be subordinate to greater authority. Third, this hierarchy meant a rule of male superiority, not just by decree, but by nature and cosmological principle. Joseph F. hints at this in his letters, as we saw, but Sousa takes it a step further and formulates it explicitly. Next, women's nature was defined by motherhood, an all-engrossing duty and identity that left her ill-suited for priesthood duties. Now, note that Smith does not formulate the priesthood motherhood paradigm. And in fact, he places motherhood and fatherhood as parallel. For example, he says to her, apparently she had gone off on some rapturous statement about what it means to be a mother in her letter to him. And he says, Now, Susie, you triumph over the supreme joys of motherhood, I think is offset by the supreme delights of fatherhood. If, as you say, we may never know what it is to be mother, on the other hand, how can you ever hope to know what it is to be a father? I think nature has about poised these pleasures in equal balance, and we have no room for difference on this point. So he doesn't place it in a theological context, nor does he construct the motherhood-priesthood paradigm. Sousa seems to have formulated this on her own. Moreover, when women understood this system they would willingly submit to it. And notice how she uses the word normal woman to bolster her theory here. And finally, the key to this willingness was proper understanding and personal revelation. She wrote, After I had my key from President Smith in regard to women's relationship to the priesthood, I was perfectly satisfied. Nay, more womanhood was glorified for me and obedience was the ultimate expression of agency. This was the key point for Sousa. Women retained their dignity and independence by choosing to use their free agency to assume their subordinate position and embrace motherhood as their highest duty. They chose to acknowledge men's authority. For Sousa, there's a strong pattern of resistance and submission running through her theories, as we've seen. Joseph F., speaking from the male authoritative perspective, does not dwell on women's psychology. But Sousa inadvertently, perhaps, reveals the mental, emotional, and spiritual workout it took to arrive at this position that she considered to be a glorious resolution to her questions and inner conflicts. All right, so we return to our original question, was Sousa Young Gates a feminist? By now, it should be clear that the answer to that question is complicated. Let's start with the fact that the term feminism did not exist in Sousa's world until relatively late. It was coined in French in the 19th century, but did not enter American use until the 19-teens. When it did, it was used self-consciously and expressly in opposition to the women's movement that Sousa had been part of for most of her life. As Nancy Cott, who's a well-known historian of, of American women rights, the term feminism was used as a form of cultural blasphemy. It was a very radical term at the time. And um, as you can imagine, Sousa did not do well with, you know didn't think much of radicalism. I have not found her yet specifically taking on the term feminism. I don't know how aware of, of all of this she was, but in her writings from this period, she's very outspoken about those those crazy women that are out demanding all these things and so the ideas are registering even if she's not confronting the term the term feminism then is picked up and ironically kind of reluctantly in the 1960s by some women because by then it seems kind of old fashioned but then it's picked up and used in second wave feminism and many of us have lived through the resulting developments controversies and iterations of feminism since then And especially today, it's hard to use the term in a way that's meaningful because it has so many different meanings and is so contested. So from a historian's point of view, which is my bread and butter, this means that when the term is used to describe women in the past, it's likely to impose meanings on those women that they themselves did not ascribe to. The narrative of 19th century Mormon women's power and autonomy, like any historical narrative, is a constructed one that speaks to the interests and needs of those doing the constructing as much to any as to any pristine historical past. This is always the case. There's probably nothing wrong with that, but it does raise the question of what claims can and should be made and what causes advocated on the basis of historical interpretation. A uh, well-known religious historian named Grant Wacker takes up these questions in an essay entitled Understanding the Past, Using the Past, Reflections on Two Approaches to History. Understanding the past, he says, involves recreation of people's thoughts and feelings exactly as they experienced them, trying to see the world as they did. And that's what we've been doing tonight in talking about Susan, trying to understand how she thought and what she saw. Using the past, on the other hand, seeks to implicate historical actions in larger frameworks of meaning, to reconfigure the past in a pattern that seems morally responsible to the needs of the present. Challenge with understanding the past is that it can become tedious, flat, an exercise in running down obscure facts and connections that only matter to the other three people in the world who study the specific thing you're talking about and some of you may have been to sessions at MHA on Mountain Meadows Massacre, and I probably don't need to say anything else. There has to be a so what. But the challenge with using the past is that in doing so, using the words, experience, and ideas of people in the past to speak to current concerns and issues, it can assume that they shared our understanding and paradigms. In a word, it can take the past out of context. Wacker says it this way, All too often historians focus upon a narrowly defined slice of the truth in order to serve a present-day cause, but in doing so, they end up telling less than the full truth. So is Susie Young Gates a feminist? Yes. No. There's a whole context to how we answer that question, both her context and ours. I don't argue for or against either approach to history. I think they're both necessary, and I think they're always going to be in productive tension with each other. Understanding the past has to be accountable to using it in a way that means something today. But using the past has to be accountable to understanding it and to how the people in the past understood themselves. So, in the case of Susie Young Gates, understanding (coughs) the past means paying close attention to what she said and thought and how her ideas and experiences were shaped by an exerted influence within the context in which she lived. So by this standard as I have shown, she does not fit comfortably into a paradigm of feminism, especially not as that term was used in her day, and she would likely not assent to much of what we now consider feminist. This calls into question more generally whether what is now sometimes called feminist Mormon history is really feminist, in what ways it is feminist, and whether we can and should make such claims on behalf of our foremothers. But on the other hand, how might we use Susa and her life and ideas? Is there anything useful there? For one thing, given the culture and constraints of her time, I think we should acknowledge that she was a standout. By her actions, if not always by her words, (laughs) she did break barriers. She claimed a right to speak and to think and to lead, and she insisted that it was because of her Mormonism, not in spite of it, for that matter because of her gender and not in spite of it. She insisted that the gospel afforded truths, perspectives, and structures that enabled her. And even if the details have changed, those feelings, I think, still resonate for many of us, and for Mormon women especially. Moreover, we can still relate to the inner conflicts that she attempted to navigate in her life what she once called her double spirit of ambition and obedience. If the obedient side of the conflict seems to have less pull today for us than it did for her, or if we might express it differently, the sense of conflict and ambivalence about gendered identities and expectations and the structures within which they are played out is still a real and powerful thing. Finally, if we are still engaging the same questions and issues she did, What do we make of her professed spiritual understanding regarding the glory of womanhood and her belief that the true order of the sexes as she understood it was given by revelation? We don't find her answers very satisfying today. I'm just going to go out on a limb and say that. But does that mean they weren't inspired at the time? And if they were, what does that mean for us now? I personally am still wrestling with those questions and excavating her vast corpus of writings to better come to terms with her theory and theology of gender. So there's a lot farther to go in understanding her story. But in the meantime, I would say, let's use it. But let's be critical about how we use it and why. Thanks.
2: Thank you very much, Lisa. That was a wonderful presentation. It gave us a lot to think about and to be irritated about. <laughs> <laughs> so felt. Or at, at, least felt. Yeah. Yeah. at least amazed. Yeah, at least amazed. We have uh, some time for questions now, and I want to remind you that this is an open mic night. This is to be, uh, a, you're to ask her some questions, not tell your own story. So I'm going to open with one. Uh, I was curious about her husband. You said that, he, uh, that they had a long and happy marriage, and she had a great deal of autonomy to do a, a great deal, given the number of children she had. What, what have you found out about her
0: husband as you, in your research? Okay, Jacob. Jacob F. Gates. Um, Jacob is hard, a little bit difficult to get at because he did not obviously leave as much material behind as Susa did. However, Jacob was, for a good part of his life, he was an insurance salesman, and so he traveled a lot, and he and Susa wrote to each other almost compulsively whenever they were separated. We actually do have quite a few letters between them. You know, it's, as simple as it may sound, he just seems to be one of these men who or one of these people, because it's not just men or women, who just didn't want to be in the front. He, he kind of liked being in the background. He seemed to have taken a lot of pride and pleasure in Susan and her accomplishments. There seems to be very little friction between them about all of the things that she's doing, which is really quite amazing, given the time and period that they lived in. You know, she actually tells the story of founding the Young Women's Journal as a suggestion from Jacob that it was Jacob's idea that she ought to concentrate her literary efforts in one place and, and maybe you could go work with Aunt M on the exponent and then when that didn't come, come to fruition it was well, then she was going to start her own magazine so um, he was a very engaged father there are some lovely letters that he writes to her about their children and things that are happening at home when she's not there and there are letters between the two of them that are, it's very clear that they just were crazy about each other. They loved each other and, and were very close. And however, whatever we, we don't have recorded, whatever kind of negotiation it took, it was a mutually supportive relationship. And, and they were very, very, um, very, very happy with each other
3: how are they
0: uh, so old chronologically and not in, involved in polygamy? Yes, okay. Why was Susie Young Gates not involved in polygamy? This is a question that comes up quite a bit. One possible answer for that, okay, the short answer is, I don't know, for sure. But one possible answer to that question is that they leave for the mission in Hawaii in 1885 They've only been married for five years at that point. Um, actually, not quite five years. And they um, you know, have been having children and, and have been very busy getting established. And then they're in Hawaii during this critical period of the raid and the intensification of the prosecutions against pluralists. And when they get back, there's just a year until the manifesto comes out. So it could largely be a matter of timing. There is in one letter to Joseph F. Smith a little bit of a hint that perhaps Jacob, if you you read it this way, it could be taken to mean that that Jacob is considering looking for a plural wife when they return to Utah. We do know that in the 1920s, he was... Jacob was sealed posthumously to another woman. My theory on that, for what it's worth, is that that was a way, especially for Sousa, to enter into polygamy without ever having to live in it. And that it was a way of kind of reconciling what was probably a a conflict for her, of how she could not enter into this principle that meant so much to her life. Uh, Could you elaborate on how uh, her views
3: compared to the views of some of her contemporaries, um, Susan B. Anthony, for instance, um. Margaret Sanger, you know, that crowd.
0: Yeah. Well, <laughs> those are not the same crowds, so let's differentiate that first of all, and that's important. Uh, Sousa was good friends with Susan B. Anthony. She thought that she was the greatest living woman next to Eliza Arsna And Susan B. Anthony had a very good relationship with the Mormon women, but also made it very clear that she did not accept or believe in polygamy and did not want them to act as if she did. And in that sense, Susan, in her relationship with women like Susan B. Anthony, Maywright Sewell, the the giants of the 19th century women's movement, were part of this... um, idea that women's gender, their common experience gave them a certain moral authority and the right and the ability to enter into the public sphere because their unique contributions were needed. And the fact that they spoke of it in terms of women's movement, that singular woman, shows how they thought of the female sex as this one great unitary whole that there's this common consciousness among women that they're drawing on in order to argue for greater rights and privileges for all women. What happens in the 20th century is that that unified idea breaks down under the realization that, you know, black women are women too, and there's all these different classes and races and individual experiences that mean that there's as much difference between women as there is between men and women. And so so in that sense, Sousa seems to share in this idea of woman as a great whole. Now, Margaret Sanger, who you bring up, is a younger generation and is, as some of you know, the first or is known to be the first great crusader on birth control in the... Uh, early 20th century and oh gosh how long have you got because there's a whole lot of things going on here but um, we could say that she kind of (coughs) represents this cultural blasphemy and this this radical spirit that feminism takes on in the teens and 20s Um, and I don't know her work well enough to say whether she herself used the term feminist or considered herself (laughs) part of that crowd But Sousa, let me tell you, in the Relief Society magazine, publishes many articles about the evil of birth control. Birth control is evil. Now, the reason for that is that um, one of the great crusades of the woman's movement is to try to overturn the sexual double standard, the idea that men... Can indulge sexually however they want and get away with it, but if a woman is compromised in any way, then she'll be lost to society and excoriated. And women like Sousa saw birth control as a way of perpetuating the double standard by allowing men to indulge and completely get away with it. Whereas the younger generations of women came to see birth control as a way of allowing women more equality in sexual expression and on more practical terms of simply not being pregnant all the time. And in that vein, it's really interesting that Souza, who spent you know, 25 years of her life pregnant, didn't, didn't seem to think that there would be any benefit to, that, <laughs> to not having to live that way. So it's, it's very interesting and very complicated. Okay, any other questions? Yes, back here. Scott, I'm sorry. You mentioned, I believe, when,
3: when you were talking early on about her experiment, her quotation. Yeah. It looked like it was about a five-year period. What did she do in the, during that five years that caused her to change her view?
0: Well, I think when she says the experiment of women mixing motherhood and public duties, I think she's talking more broadly. I don't think she's referring to anything specific necessarily. It's just an interesting statement for her to make given the fact that especially in the 1890s when she's saying this, you know, motherhood and public duties don't mix. She's got as much public duties as motherhood going on. She herself is living out this so-called experiment. She later calls that decade her life's most crowded years. She's teaching at Brigham Young Academy, she's got a Sunday school of 60 girls. She's Organizing the National Domestic Science Association. She's going to the National Council of Women. She's writing, writing, writing constantly to supply material for the Young Woman's Journal. So she lived that out. And I think we have to say that some of her ambivalence about mixing motherhood and public duties probably did come from her own experience. But at the same time, that doesn't seem to have stopped her any. And... Um... This brings up another point about the women's movement is that they often and Susan not a whole lot, but they often unself consciously talked about how um, all this domestic work could just be done by servants, by paid employees and so forth. And so this has been one of the um, complications and problems in women's movements is which women's liberation gets purchased on the backs of which women. Because Sousa had girls who worked in her home, and she she did, they weren't wealthy by any means, but she did have the ability to hire a girl to come in and help with the cooking and the cleaning and the housework, which enabled her to do some of these public duties. So, it's complicated. Yeah. Armand, and then? Aside from
3: how, how she lived and what she lived out, yeah. Um, just considering her theory of gender, from what little I know about the uh, historical context there, I don't see a whole lot of difference between her and what other Mormon sisters of the time would have said. Yeah. And uh, so she, in, in that sense then, you think of her as, as uh, really kind of representative of the LDS women of her time and place. Um, which would put them somewhat at odds with the national women's movement, but, but uh, in more ways than polygamy perhaps. But if I just make one more thing, it seems to me then that what happens as the century turns and we go into the 20th century, <coughs> um, what comes in with what comes in with the LDS, feminists if we can call them that right. at that point <clears throat> converges a lot with what we have in the nation as a whole by about 1920 um, the, the women's movement in the nation as a whole really didn't accomplish much more than getting the vote and that's what they were all excited about anyway Once they got the vote, it seemed like they forgot about everything else. And in that sense, you've got a convergence of the Mormons with the rest of the country, which pretty much stays the case such that Mormons look just like the rest of the country during the first half of the 20th century because they came to convergence uh, in the same way and that the non-Mormon women pretty much were forced to give up anything but the vote. Uh, as the progressive movement came in, in the nation as a whole, it seems to me, that legislation that was passed on behalf of women was really uh, oppressive. That is, progressive movement passed, vo- passed laws about how how and where women could work, whether they could go out at night, yeah. and all of that stuff, which was again contrary to what I would have thought Susan B. Anthony would have would have thought.
0: Well, so okay, there's a lot there, and I can't even remember all of it. But uh, well, this is generally correct. But this idea now, of this idea of convergence, I think. I think it's right that the early 20th century, up to 1920 or so, and the granting of the vote does represent a high point of Mormon women's convergence with national women's movements. But as I showed with the term feminism coming into being after suffrage is is accomplished, and it's true that after that point the the women's movement kind of splinters, and and um, diffuses, and in some ways gets co-opted by the idea that now men and women are going to work together, and what that ended up meaning is the men are going to be in charge. Um, but you can also see that in so far as feminism, as a specific strain of the women's movement, begins to articulate ideas of individual, individuality, sexual freedom, Um, subversiveness of the the mainstream culture and so forth, that sows the seeds for the divergence of Mormon women's um, affinity to the national women's movement. And in the 20s, 30s, and so forth, Mormon women turn their energies, and it's really kind of before that. We have to remember that Mormon women... Utah women, which largely meant Mormon women, for all intents and purposes, got the vote in 1895. Because when the Utah State Constitution is passed, then from 96 onward with statehood, Mormon women have the vote. And I think, and and the truth is that we need a lot more historical work in that first third or so of the 20th century to really understand this. But there's kind of a lull in Mormon women's activism at that point. And then those energies get turned into things like social work and um, the professionalization of women, domestic science, and so forth, which then sows the seeds of the welfare plan. Anyway, there's a lot going on there. But um, I I would just say that there are ways in which Sousa reflects, yes, the thinking of other Latter-day Saints, particularly in this idea that Motherhood and womanhood are the bedrock and are not just biologically true but theologically true. And women at large during the period believed that as well. Motherhood, womanhood, that's the bedrock but without the theological part. And that is what holds on in Mormondom longer after it begins to be subverted and questioned and challenged within American society at whole. And then if we are going to take (coughs) that idea and this idea of male headship into an eternal theological perspective of eternal marriage, then that's taking a biblical principle and holding on to it and enshrining it in a way that mainstream Christianity also did not hold on to. Okay, yes.
3: Was it not a condition of, of statehood for Utah that the women might <clears throat> not be able to continue to vote?
0: Uh, no. So women in Utah originally got the vote in 1870. It was then revoked in 1887 with the edmunds tucker anti-polygamy legislation. And at that point, the Mormon women mobilized and said, that is our right and we're going to get it back and after the manifesto in particular they said we are not going to let statehood pass unless women's suffrage is part of the constitution of the state of utah and that became one of the major controversies and discussions bh roberts as some of you know gives this impassioned you know this this big speech about how women's suffrage should not be part of the constitution not so much because he didn't believe in women voting, but it was this age-old argument, well, let's get statehood first, and then we can pass women's suffrage. And the women are like, uh-uh, no. We're going to have women's suffrage as part of the Constitution, and they prevailed on that. So well, they did have... The if
3: the federal government wouldn't have the power to shove it down their throats if they wanted yeah. to, instead you want it, you're not going to get statehood. Yeah. Well, who gets the power well, is
0: a state question? Yeah, it was a state. Qu- it was a state question. It wasn't a federal government question. They were able to frame their own constitution. So, so the, so the constitutional amendment had virtually no effect in Utah. Mm-hmm. Which one?
3: They already
1: had the vote. <clears throat> no, so, oh, the nineteenth.
0: The nineteenth amendment. The nineteenth amendment that gave Utah women the or that gave American women the votes not until nineteen twenty. And national and Utah suffrage is 1895 96 is when mm-hmm. statehood takes effect. So, so, all that so they had had it for 25 years, yeah, mm-hmm. before it comes in nationally. Mm-hmm. You had a question, I'm sorry, I forgot. Gail, right?
2: Yes, uh, Brigham Young, as well as speaking to the grandness of motherhood and being the most important foundation, he also am I correct, stated that women should learn skills and uh, that would entail doing work
0: within the community and even earning a living if she had to. Yeah. Um, Do you want to stay a couple more hours? Brigham Young's uh, ideas about women um, are complex. Um, I always say that you can prove anything by going to the Journal of Discourses because Brigham Young said just about everything at one point or another. And I think we ought to apply the same principle to the Journal of Discourses that the Doctrine and Covenants applies to the Apocrypha, right? There are many things within them which are true. And let he who has the spirit read them carefully. Um, Brigham Young's ideas about women kind of evolved over time. And he came to see the potential and the importance of women participating in the community in public ways. And so, yes, there's that famous statement that everybody loves to quote that supposedly proves Brigham Young was a feminist, about women learning to keep shop and keep the books and all of those kinds of things. Well, I think he meant that. But um, I also think he thought that man was the head of woman and... That the women's sphere was primarily in the domestic <coughs> realm, well, as not well, but that they weren't mutually exclusive. He thought that no, and actually, that's a really important point because he came to articulate that, and so did Susan's generation, and so did many leaders, male and female, during this period that, as I say, is sometimes seen as this high point of Mormon women's power and autonomy in the late 19th century. So. Yeah, you can, uh, you can use Brigham Young as a precedent for a lot of different ideas about women, but that is one of them. Yeah. Well,
2: you know, Mormon men also were, were, were always, as many men were during that time, going off
0: for various yeah.
2: campaigns and for wars. And missions. Especially uh, in missions and especially, and especially yeah. in the 19, 19, 19 14, 20s, mm-hmm. and consequently, if women did not know how to do those things, their society in many areas would have collapsed. So yeah. they had to learn to keep the books, to take care of the fields, sure, tend the store as it were. Mm-hmm. And I think if you, if you, if you take that element out, you lose a lot of the sense of independence that the women gained during that period.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really important point, and I think we can also take even a broader historical perspective on that and say that women always kept the books, for crying out loud. Men were always busy or liable to die and be absent and from colonial times and time immemorial. Women always did have a, a important roles within the community and, and within the economy. There were some particular resonances for that within Mormonism. And there's also a strain in, in historical analysis that, that would say that you know, gender roles are less constrained, less rigid in a transitional society like a frontier society. And so that would be expected. I mean, when, you know, when every hand is needed to make sure you eat, it doesn't matter whose hands it is. And so, yes, there, there was a lot of that going on. As well and I think this is part of the point of women's history right is to go back and to say you know women are have always been there right at the center keeping body soul and stomach together right and and that's not to say that that they weren't in relationship with men they always have been but um, that women's contributions have always been there and always been needed and always been important whether or not that's been acknowledged Yes.
1: You know, it seems to me as I hear you talk about Susan, that she's very much a product of her time and being the daughter of Brigham Young, the confidant of Joseph F. Smith, and clearly aspiring to be known as a leading Mormon woman, uh, a writer, uh, founder of these journals and whatnot. And we have a very hierarchical hierarchical church. Mm -hmm. And today, even now, if you aspire to leadership in the church, you need to nod your head and say yes when when the president or some leading man speaks. So in that sense, it doesn't seem that she had much choice if she wanted to be what she wanted to be. Uh, And I guess my question is this, were there any Mormon leading women whose voices dissented on these issues, or were they all pretty well nodding their heads and saying yes?
0: Yeah, the question of finding dissent in the record is a really complex one. (coughs) And... In a word, it's really difficult to find. Mm-hmm. You find the dissent primarily among those who left the church and then got labeled as apostates. So yes, it's a very good and a very important question. I think what Susan's I think what we see from these sources like what I've been talking about tonight is that she struggled. She recognized the conflicts, she felt them, she lived them, she She had questions, and she tried to figure them all out, but she believed, and she wanted to be part of the community, and she did believe in the theology, and so she had to reconcile those things. And I think we have to give her credit that both of those things were true, and that she just lived out a lot of contradictions in her own life. Is it any different, you know, for anybody at any given time and place? There's always questions and constraints. But, yeah, for sure.
2: Uh, how would you compare Sousa's perspective with Emmeline B. Wells?
0: Oh. You know, they're a different generation. Emmeline is the same age as Sousa's mother. And I think, I think they shared a lot of the same perspective, Emmeline was very much a believer in the idea of woman and the woman's movement and the idea that woman could take her place and I'm not an expert on Emmeline but I think there's a little bit more of an edge in some of Emmeline's writings and a little bit more of a an agitation that for some reasons as Morris has um, articulated here maybe Susa didn't want to express or didn't feel like she could I think Souza was uh, Emmeline was very active and she did all this writing. She went to the meetings. Souza was more in a transitional generation where they um, believed in a lot of those ideas, but then they went out and organized domestic science associations and they taught classes. and they she did. she had her hands in a lot more of the practical aspects of putting these ideas into into play. And maybe that made a difference in her seeing some of the contradictions and and difficulties more than, than maybe Emily did. I, it's a good question, and Carol and I need to get together and talk about it in further length. <laughs> okay, one more question in the back. I know we're all tired. Mike, did you have a question? Yeah. Well,
3: it, it was just back to the comment earlier about expressing the sin. It, it almost feels like, or seems to me like, the very fact that, that some women, like Sousa, who's kind of the one we're talking about tonight, who, who has to find a way to make sense of what they're hearing from the male leaders is in and of itself an expression of dissent. Ultimately, they, uh, they have to find an, a way in which it will make sense for them. But the easy answer would be to just accept it without trying to make sense of it for them. So the fact that they have to go through... In this case, she had to go through years of kind of effort to try to find a way to to make sense of it. Is it in and of itself an expression of dissent? It seems to
0: me. Yeah, I think it's a really good point. It's certainly an acknowledgement of conflict and of, as I said, the spiritual workout that it took and psychological workout that it took for her to get to that point. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to the Dialogue Journal podcast series. We'd like to thank our guests today. For more Dialogue podcasts or to comment on this one, please visit DialogueJournal.com. Thank you.